The Implication of Regeneration and Atonement for Psychology A serious threat to the Church in recent years has been the invasion of humanistic psychologies into the pastoral relationship. Counseling has increasingly been based on radically anti-Christian foundations, which do serious harm to the people they are supposed to help. Numerous books on pastoral counseling have been written, which do little more than invade the pastoral domain with alien religious premises derived from humanism. Some writers have been aware of these problems. Worth, for example, tried to assess the contributions of modern psychology from a Reformed perspective. He was ready to be appreciative of its contributions while trying to conform them to a biblical mold. The result was an interesting study, with at times telling insights, but lacking in a systematic character. Adams, following the lead of the humanist O. Hobart Maurer, has been more successful. After Maurer, Adams rejects the idea that problems such as alcoholism, mental depression, or neurosis, and related mental problems are sicknesses. Rather, they are moral problems, escapes from or denials of responsibility and their cure is the resumption of sound moral responsibility. Adams' analysis of the failures of the medical model, i.e. the idea that mental problems like physical diseases invade the patient from without and are to be solved from outside the man, is excellent. He strongly advances the moral model, i.e. the concept that mental problems are moral problems, which arise from within as a result of moral failure and are to be solved from within by moral responsibility. Adams calls his variety of pastoral psychology nothetic counseling. Can a psychology be true, and can it give valid counsel to any man, if it rests on a failure to recognize the very different natures of man in the state of depravity and man in the state of grace? To cite a very specific example, Susan Griffin has called attention to lust for violence in modern man, which she believes is a myth propagated by our culture. In this same culture which expects aggression from the male expects passivity from the female. Conveniently, the companion myth about the nature of female sexuality is that all women secretly want to be raped. Lurking beneath her modest female exterior is a subconscious desire to be ravished. Susan Griffin cites examples of this belief that women secretly desire rape by quoting from two radical newspapers. She points out also that forcible rape is the most frequently committed violent crime in America today, and that convictions are difficult to obtain, and the trial procedures brutal towards the victim. She cites also an example of the belief by rapists that their victims enjoy the act. A young woman who was raped by the husband of a friend said that days after the incident, the man returned to her home, pounded on the door, and screamed to her, Jane, Jane, you loved it. You know you loved it. Not every sinner believes as this man does, but every sinner, in some form, harbors a like depravity, although it may manifest itself in other ways. In an unregenerate culture, because man must seek self-atonement, there is a proneness to violence, because it satisfies the sadomasochistic urges of the unregenerate heart. There is a need to give and to receive violence, and a pleasure therein. The marked increase in rape when sexual morality becomes loose and fornication and adultery commonplace indicates the need for violence. Moreover, only a fraction of all rapes are reported, so that the violence is greater than statistics indicate. Furthermore, violence is increasingly an aspect of consenting sexual relationships, 
i.e. a girl who consents readily to the sexual act, will then be dealt with violently in order to submit to others as well, in order to add the element of sadism to the relationship. The motives which govern unregenerate men are not the same as those which govern regenerate men. Man, in the state of grace, is a sinner still, but because he has a new nature, he is governed by radically different motives and presuppositions. This new nature will reveal itself in good fruit, because every tree bears in terms of its nature. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Matthew 7, 16. Moreover, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. John 3, 6. These words of Christ make sharply clear that there is a difference between men in the state of depravity and men in the state of grace. What is natural to one is not natural to the other. To assume a common motivation is to deny a fundamental fact of Scripture. Both the fallen and the redeemed are men. What is common to them is their creation by God and their common heritage in Adam. Both alike, for example, have hunger and thirst but their attitudes towards satisfaction differ. The sexual urge in the redeemed man, despite his sinful tendencies in terms of the old Adam in him, is governed by a desire for godly fulfillment. Sin is abhorrent to him, and his own sin distresses him. The fallen man, however, covets the opportunity to sin and lives for it. For the godly, freedom means life under God and his law. For the ungodly, freedom means escape from God and his law. We must say, therefore, that first, we must recognize, in any biblical psychology, that there is a difference in the state of man in the state of depravity and man in the state of grace. Second, this difference rests in a fundamental difference of natures, and the ground of this difference is the supernatural act of God in regenerating man. That which is born of the flesh, of human nature, is human nature after Adam, fallen and depraved. As Hendrickson commented, One could paraphrase as follows, sinful human nature produces sinful human nature. Cross-reference Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one. Cross-reference also Psalm 51.5. The Holy Spirit produces the sanctified human nature. Dean Alford made this even plainer. The neuter gender, that which is born denotes not only the universal application of this truth, but, see Luke 1.35, the very first beginnings of life in the embryo, before sex can be predicated. So, Bengal, it denotes the very first elements of life. The Lord here answers Nicodemus's hypothetical question of verse 4 by telling him that even could it be so, it would not accomplish the birth of which he speaks. In this flesh is included every part of that which is born, after the ordinary method of generation. Even the spirit of man, which receptive as it is of the spirit of God, is yet in the natural birth dead, sunk in trespasses and sins, and in a state of wrath. Such flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 15.50. But when the man is born again of the spirit, the water does not appear any more, being merely the outward form of reception, the less included in the greater, Then just as flesh generates flesh, so spirit generates spirit. See 2 Corinthians 3.18 end. And since the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, such only who are so born can enter into it. There's a third area of fundamental difference in the natures of redeemed and unredeemed men, namely with respect to atonement. 
With the unregenerate, sin and guilt are a burden, a source of anxiety, alienation, neurosis, and psychosis. Self-atonement leads to sadistic and masochistic activities and a fundamentally different culture. Much of modern literature, drama, film, and television fare is simply a development of sadistic and masochistic themes because of their extensive appeal to modern man. Self-atonement is a powerful motive force, and it has left its destructive trail through all of history. While there can be lingering elements of self-justification in the redeemed man, it is no longer the motive force. The life of the redeemed is one of release from the burden of sin and guilt. In the words of St. Paul, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Redemption means the release of psychic energy from destructive to constructive channels, so that the social impact of regeneration is reconstructive and that of self-atonement destructive. To discuss psychology from a Christian perspective without reference to the far-reaching implications of atonement is an amazing form of blindness. A fourth fundamental difference is the fact that the drive of the unregenerate is for autonomy, essentially from God, but also for a godlike autonomy from other men. The redeemed, on the other hand, seek to place themselves under the law and will of God, and they find their peace and joy therein. Adams, in a footnote, acknowledges this fact, stating, Dr. Cornelius Van Til of Westminster Theological Seminary has shown the importance of presuppositional analysis. He has demonstrated that at bottom, all non-Christian systems demand autonomy for man, thereby seeking to dethrone God. Adams seeks to make this a cornerstone of his psychology, and he uses the presuppositional critique to analyze other schools of thought. Essentially, his use of it is to point to the non-directive psychologies of humanism as against the directive nature of Christian counseling, which assumes the authority of God's word. This is good as far as it goes, but it limits presuppositional analysis largely to methodology. There is too meager an application of biblical doctrine to the issues at hand. Atonement is not listed in the index, but is referred to on page 20. And regeneration gets a brief reference on pages 18, 20, and 73. Biblical doctrine of pastoral counseling, which bypasses the import of these doctrines, is not possible. In the 18th century, the English divine Robert South, one of the most eloquent and witty men of his day, aptly described the folly of treating the regenerate and unregenerate alike. In discussing ingratitude, South called attention to the governing character of man's nature. And therefore, where ingratitude begins remarkably to show itself, he surely judges most wisely who takes alarm betimes, and auguring the fountain from the stream, concludes that there is ill nature at the bottom and so reducing his judgment in practice, timely withdraws his frustraneous, baffled kindnesses and sees the folly of endeavoring to stroke a tiger into a lamb or to court an Ethiopian out of his color. Fifth, we must recognize that autonomous man has a radically different doctrine of sanctification than does the regenerate man. Carl Shapiro has said of Henry Miller, Morally, I regard Miller as a holy man, as most of his adherents do. Of Miller's concept of sanctification, Shapiro points out that Miller says in a little essay on immorality and morality, what is moral and what is immoral? Nobody can ever answer this question satisfactorily. 
not because morals ceaselessly evolve, but because the principle on which they depend is factitious. Morality is for slaves, for beings without spirit. And when I say spirit, I mean the Holy Spirit. And he ends this little piece with a quotation from ancient Hindu scripture, evil does not exist. For the Christian, sanctification is growth in obedience to God's law word by means of the Holy Spirit. It means being separated to God by faith and obedience and being under God and his word. When the psalmist declared, Oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day, Psalm 119.97, he expressed his joy not only in God's law, but his delight in the life of faith and obedience. The psalmist and Henry Miller both speak of sanctification, but there is a sharp antithesis apparent in their doctrines and in their psychologies. Turning again to John 3.6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, it is important to emphasize afresh its meaning. Ellicott's comment is noteworthy. The first step is to remind him, Nicodemus, of the law of likeness in natural generation. Flesh, as distinct from spirit, is human nature insofar as it is common with animal nature, consisting of the bodily frame and its animal life, feelings, and passions. Flesh, as opposed to spirit, is the nature as not under the guidance of the human spirit, which is itself the shrine of the divine spirit, and therefore it is sinful. Compare Galatians verse 17 at Seek 6.8. It is this nature and its material constitution, and subject to sin, which is transmitted from father to son. The physical life itself is dependent upon birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. There is an analogous law of spiritual generation. Spirit as opposed to flesh is the differentia of man as distinct from all other creatures. It is the image of God in him, the seat of the capacity for the communion with God, which is the true principle of life. In the natural man, this is crushed and dormant. In the spiritual man, it has been quickened by the influence of the Holy Ghost. This is a new life in him, and the spiritual life, like the physical, is dependent upon birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Clearly, therefore, a central task of Christian psychology is to ascertain this fundamental difference, to declare the necessity of rebirth and the centrality of the doctrine of the atonement for psychology. Pastoral counseling should ascertain whether or not the person is truly regenerate, and then seek to further grow in sanctification. Christians in their everyday life will recognize that the testing of time and experiences will provide a revelation of man's relationship to God, and many persons will fall by the wayside as their unbelief is exposed. In a time of trial and trouble, the reactions of men will differ in terms of their faith. In the face of a crisis, both the ungodly and the godly can react with courage and bravery, but with the one, its mainspring can be masochism, and with the other, it can be a constructive dedication to a cause. Time will reveal the mainsprings, but we must also recognize the radical difference in the mainsprings.